3: And I'm Colin Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA.
2: Ask the AMPs is where we try to address any and all maintenance questions that come our way. If you have a question, please send it to us at podcasts.com at aopa.org, that's podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like
0: the show, subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in the world of COVID, Thanksgiving has taken on a whole new meaning in terms of people going places. Mm -hmm. Because normally I would be flying off to one of my sister's homes where everybody gets together, you know, like 30 people and all that. And this year, sadly, all staying home.
3: Yeah.
2: It's a different world. Yeah. I don't know. There's, there's something to be said for staying home. I'm thankful.
3: Actually, a lot of Thanksgivings, I stay home and I, I go to the airport because nobody's there and I work on my airplane in peace and quiet. So. <laughs>
2: there you go.
0: Well, it means that I have to ship out my fudge that I make every year. I have to send it everywhere instead of having it in person with everybody.
3: And I will send you my address. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> It'll be right, All right there. It'll be right there. <laughs> <laughs> So let's get started. Our first guest is Greg, who has been looking at an airplane with damage history for purchase. Go ahead, Greg.
1: Thank you. And uh, first, just a quick thanks to all of you for doing the podcast. I'm um, really enjoying it. And I think it's great for the community to, to have this uh, monthly touch point and, and get your feedback on all these important topics. And my question is, I've been looking for a Cessna 185, and um, it's it's been out of production for a period of time. And I've looked at a lot of airframes that have had a fair amount of damage history, wings that have been replaced, skins that have been replaced, ribs that have been replaced, lots of ground accidents. I finally found one that has um, very minimal damage history, but it sort of set me thinking, how much is too much history in an airframe? And what would all of you think about when looking at an airframe that that is older and, and potentially have some damage history and how much is too much?
0: Well, first off, to answer your first comment about us doing this, we only do it because it's, it's a lot of fun. So, you know, but I'll weigh into that because I have a 185 coming into the shop here pretty soon. And we do a lot of structural work. The um, 185s without structural repair history are gonna be really hard to find because of the nature of how they're used. So I wouldn't be too worried about damage history mostly about how it's repaired. If it's repaired well and documented well, I wouldn't have any problem with it whatsoever. You'll get a little price discount because it has damage history, but you'll lose that when you sell it because it'll have damage history.
3: Yeah, I I read somewhere, I was reading up on damage history, and I saw one person made an estimate that if the damage history was in the previous year or two, you could see as much as a 20% price reduction. And of course, that depends on the damage. But the person giving this opinion also said that as the years go by, that deficit in the price will uh, vanish at a rate of about 2% each year. So that damage history for your aircraft, I think you said the accident was in 2002 for the aircraft you were looking at. That would have been erased by now. I mean, as long as the repair was done correctly, as Paul said, and the aircraft has proven over the years that it's flying properly and the damage uh, repair hasn't you know, undone itself, then I think you're probably out of the woods. And like Paul said, it's impossible to find one of these that doesn't have damage history. You'd be looking at something that's been sitting in someone's shed full of corrosion, probably.
0: I'm, I'm imagining what a damage repair having undone itself would look like.
3: <laughs> well, rivets coming back—you know—something that has proven to be um, a bad, you know, midnight oh, yeah. job.
0: <laughs> Just your not, your your terminology took me by
2: surprise.
3: Nothing that your shop would put out, Paul.
0: Oh no, I hope not.
2: Also, I'm amazed sometimes at what um, a prospective buyers consider to be damage history that that wants to scare them off. One, one of the classics is a prop strike. You know, to me, a prop strike is is it's not a problem, it's an opportunity because the, the airplane's going to come out better than it was before and the insurance is going to pick up the bill. So, I mean, prop strikes are great. We, we ought to have one every several years just on general principles, I think. <laughs> <All>
4: uh,
2: <right. laughs> you know, another kind of damage history that always amuses me is, uh, uh, l- let's say there was some severe hangar rash that damaged a rudder. And so the rudder was taken off and replaced with another rudder, an undamaged rudder. Well, to me, that's not damage history because if you could inspect the aircraft and there, there, it seems to me that the, the damage that is repaired in a way that there's no way to detect that it ever happened, it, it shouldn't really be considered damage history. Yeah. There isn't really a
0: definition for damage history. Everybody makes up their own, but there are definitions for major repair, so I, I totally agree. That's If you replace the left wing with a serviceable left wing, then whatever happened to the other wing really doesn't matter. But if you repair the scratch on the left wing by replacing a skin, that's damage history. But replacing the wing is
2: not damage history. And replacing the wing is not a major repair, right? Right. Oh, yeah. It's not, <laughs> you it's don't, have, a, to, it's you don't have to on file part. a 337 for it, right? That's right. It's just a bolt-on part.
3: I think I would feel more comfortable, too, if I knew that I could adequately inspect the damage history. I'm aware of one aircraft that was lost in an accident because there was an improperly done wing scarf repair on the wing spar. And there was no way to inspect it because the uh, wing had been covered, fabric covered, and the damage repair had been, you know, was invisible. You couldn't access the area Uh, and it had been done poorly. So if you can see what was done and inspect it from the inside and out and make sure that it was done according to standards, aircraft standards, then I think I would feel very comfortable with it.
0: Hey, Greg, wonderful question. Have you found uh, someone to do uh, a really good pre-buy, someone that knows structural repairs and 185s in particular?
1: You know, I actually ended up um, sort of changing candidate airframes midstream and I've got one now that has virtually no damage history at all so this this literally was a uh single owner aircraft since 1980 the owner that I'm buying it from um actually flew it away from uh, Wichita Kansas in 1980 uh, and, oh, wow. and um, a single <laughs> owner aircraft um used privately since since it was new
0: that's that's a unicorn <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. With a,
3: with a rainbow,
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, I'm sure the that's price. That's great
1: find.
0: The
3: price probably reflects that it's so pristine.
1: Uh, sadly, uh, you are correct, there, Colleen.
3: Yeah, but you get what you pay for, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
3: Well, great. I think uh, that was a, a really interesting question, and I, I hope uh, we provided you some food for thought. Sounds like you're well on your way to a, a new aircraft. Um, despite us. (laughs) We're
1: we're, we're getting close at this point. And thank you so much for answering this. I appreciate it.
3: Yeah, you bet. Thanks. uh, And enjoy your 185. Thank
1: you. Will do.
0: Our next question is from Randall, who's got a uh, problem with some oil leaks. Welcome to the show, Randall. How are you doing? Okay. Yeah. Let us know what's happening.
5: Okay. Um, So I'll sort of start from the beginning at uh, about 1,500 hours you know it it typically i never got great oil consumption but you know it was, it was 10 9 8 in there for most of its uh 1500 hours and then uh, over a period of maybe a couple hundred hours it just sort of dropped down to about uh oh, a third of a quart an hour and so i uh, this is an rv6 uh lycovo 360 and I built the plane, and so that means I know just enough to be really dangerous uh, about engines. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, anyway, I did, unless the help of an A.M.P. to help me. Uh, I, I, bore uh, <laughs> the cylinders. Um, I've checked all the things. There's no oil in the bottom plugs, no oil and gunk coming out of the tailpipe. Uh, compression really good. It's always been very good. It's very fairly stable. in the you know mid mid to upper 70s and uh, on all cylinders, but it had oil in the bottom plugs. So I, uh, we boroscope, I'm sorry, we did boroscope the cylinders and found uh, some, I guess we call it rash. He said it was, uh, you know, it was just shallow pitting in all the cylinders. Now I've listened to a lot of, uh, and watched a lot of Mike Bush webinars and know that you don't pull cylinders unless you have to, but that seemed kind of fairly obvious. And so uh, with the help of this, Mechanica, we pulled all the cylinders and took them in and and had them uh their right their original nitride cylinders so we just had them honed out to uh they're still within new specs it was very shallow i guess so they could do that and uh um, put new rings on and that's all he did and he put and we put them back on and it as far as i can tell i broke it in well and i looked I borescoped it again afterwards, but it's barely changed the oil consumption. So by process of elimination, I'm thinking maybe valve guides, uh, that's all I can tell. I'm And so kind of stumped at this point. And, uh, and I have to trust my my mechanics you know, opinion on what the cylinders are supposed to look like because I really don't have enough experience. I'm not sure where you can go to find uh, visual examples of what to look for, uh, but it's kind of where I'm at.
3: Well, in in Mike's book on engines, he talks uh, specifically about uh, oil leaks. Um, He has a whole chapter on that. And Mike um, states in the book that the oil can go one of three places. It either goes out the breather line and all over your belly, which you've looked for and you said you didn't find. Uh, It leaks in the engine compartment from any number of places and makes a, a big mess or it's burned by combustion in the, in the cylinders. And you would see the evidence of that by uh, the oily uh, exhaust that you talked about. Your suspicion of the oil going through the uh, valve stems would be the, the third choice, uh, oil being burned in the combustion chamber. My question to you is, have you had any uh, issues of uh, sticking valves or have you had a check of the valve fit in the guides? Using the Lycoming service bulletin.
5: No, um, I uh, there's no sticking valves, and I have not done the wobble test. I think that's probably what you're referring to, right. and uh, that's something that's basically something on my list. Um, I Actually, had a I borrowed a a tester, but it turned out to be the wrong one for the engine, so <laughs> I didn't follow through on that. But, I, but I'm wondering what that's going to tell me exactly also in terms of this, you know.
3: Well, if there's play in the valve, uh, in the guide, the valve stem in the guide, then there could be oil coming through that area and you'd have to, uh, well, if it's too loose, then you'd have to replace the, you'd have to take the cylinder off and replace the guides. If it's too tight, then you've got a sticking valve problem. And, you know, we always worry about this with like lycomings, um, so that's why I asked.
5: Is the, I I mean, I'm still above the spec for Lycoming. It's just that it's getting kind of close. And so that's the other question is, uh, you know, when do I really start worrying about it? And also where would it, where would it go? I mean, would it be showing up? And if it was coming out the valve stems uh, in gunk out of the tailpipe or anything like that, because I just don't seem to be much out the belly or any more than usual, anyway. It's always got some oil on
3: out, it, out the belly is a breather line issues. And that's a whole nother a ball of wax. And that's quite possible that you still do have a problem like that. It's a kind of insidious problem. But if it's being burned in the combustion chamber, um, you would see just that greasy substance on the oil tailpipe. I'm sorry, on the tailpipe, the exhaust of the engine, the exhaust mm-hmm. pipe.
2: Randall, let me make a couple of comments here. First of all, as you point out, The oil consumption that you're seeing is not high enough to be an airworthiness issue. It's certainly not high enough to start getting heroic in terms of doing invasive things. I'm very sorry to hear that your mechanic talked you into pulling all those cylinders off, because obviously there wasn't anything wrong with them. You put them back on and everything was the same. So that seems like it was not the appropriate thing to do, and, and I would never... If you were a savvy client, I would never authorize the cylinders coming off because of oil pressure or oil consumption of a quart in three hours it's It's extremely easy to determine whether the problem is is with the the valve guides. First of all, oil consumption is not going to be affected at all by a problem with the exhaust valve guides. The only way it can be affected is with the intake valve guide. So all you need to do is, Borescope the cylinder with the prop turned to where the intake valve is fully open and go see if the backside of the valve is wet with oil. It shouldn't be. It should be dry. The other way you could do it, which is a little bit more invasive, is to drop a piece of the intake manifold and see if there's oil in it. Uh, and there shouldn't be. You know, there should be uh, it's a carbureted engine, so you should see avgas stains and stuff in there, but there shouldn't be anything oily in there. But the easiest way to do it is to is to do it with a borescope and and borescope the cylinders with the intake valves wide open so you can see the backside of them and you can see the bottom end of the intake valve stem. And if it's if it's oily, then then you do have a problem. Now, some engines and I don't know specifically on your O three hundred and sixty, I'd have to look it up in the manual. Some engines have oil seals on the top of their intake valves and if you do have an oil seal it might be as simple as changing the oil seal uh, other engines do not have oil seals and rely strictly on the close tolerance fit between the 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 intake valve stem and guide and in that case the only way you could remediate the problem would be to pull the cylinders and and revalve them but uh, but I certainly wouldn't do that unless the oil consumption got to a point where it was really serious and it doesn't sound like it's serious at all. You you're not fouling your bottom plugs. You're not, you know, there's nothing about this that's that's causing any operational issues or safety of flight issues. So I, I certainly wouldn't be pulling cylinders and revalving them. But you certainly can easily inspect to find out whether that's the problem or not, just with a borescope.
0: Sorry, we, we did go kind of long there, Randall. That was, that was a good question. Thanks for the, uh, the call in, and uh, we appreciate it. Thanks. And Let us luck. know how it works
3: out. So next up is Robert, uh, who has a question that's on uh, the mind of many new owners, and that concerns Magneto's. What do you have, Robert?
6: yeah so we bought my wife and i bought this uh piper Cherokee 140 in March and uh well now I want to do everything right first time we have owned an airplane and I understand about the annual and then about the 50 hour oil change and i'm still learning other things and uh, it seemed like i as I looked under the hood there there was the magneto it looked pretty nice looked like it was in pretty good shape but it I was thinking, well, I need to know how often do you change your magneto? So I would be up to date. That's my, my main question. Well, first off, you don't really
0: need to change your magneto. So I'm just going to jump in right off the bat here. Take a look through your engine maintenance records. Find out when the last time the the mag was done. Have you done that? Do you know?
6: No, I I, I should okay. have before I uh, I put this question to you. I got my book what? right here on the bookshelf, but I... I haven't looked through it. I didn't even know if it was gonna be in there and it's pretty thick.
0: Well, it's, it's in there somewhere, but generally speaking, both magneto manufacturers want you to overhaul your magneto or at least inspect it every 500 hours or four years. And we would agree that 500 hours is a great time to pull the magneto, perform an IRAN, which is inspect and repair as necessary. Don't need to overhaul but send it out for a 500-hour inspection and find out what's going on inside. I generally prefer myself to send mags out to a Magneto shop that has lots of experience with Magnetos. And you want to find out what's wrong first because sometimes all the things that a really old Magneto might need could exceed the cost of an exchange unit. So you want to find out first, but typically just a few hundred dollars every 500 hours and off you go, you're in good shape.
6: Okay. Uh, When I look through records and I find, what's it gonna say? It's gonna give the um, tack time?
0: (laughs) That's a really good, that's an excellent question. What is it gonna say? It depends on the mechanic, but yeah, there should be in the engine maintenance log, there should be some sort of statement about the magneto was pulled, either replaced, overhauled. Hopefully, there's a good description of what was done. And that's required per 43.9 that a description of the work performed was done. If it was just exchanged, it might say uh, installed overhauled mag or exchanged mag and and reference a, a work order number or something like that. But on the entry, it hopefully will give the tack time or the engine total time, or some time reference that you should be able to trace to today, and find out how long ago that was done.
6: Yeah, Uh, I was just thinking uh, in my mind about uh, the 500, let's see, 500 hours or four years, and let's see here, I'm not, I think the four years may come uh, sooner. It it
0: will, I wouldn't be so concerned about the four years. On your Cherokee 140, you don't have pressurized mags, so you're not pumping a bunch of high moisture air into the mags that would cause corrosion, which would be more of a calendar issue. Uh, I'd be more concerned about the hourly time.
6: Okay, great. Wow, this is a very big help. I thank y'all. I really enjoyed your show. I really enjoy your show.
3: And there, there is an airworthiness directive on many of these Bendix mags, um, or there used to be, for 500-hour inspections, which meant it was compulsory that you had to remove them and have them looked at. Um, But the FAA, in one of their rare strokes of brilliance, um, rescinded that for many models and just said it wasn't required after all. But we still do advise uh, that you do that just because uh, the magneto is what's keeping you in the air, right? Even though there's two, it's important to, uh, because there are things inside the magneto that wear. So we think those 500-hour inspections are uh, important to do. And if you're smart, if you're smart, you'll stagger them, right? Since you have two and you don't want to get hit with that big bill all at once, pull one off every couple of years and then just have them stagger to spread that price out.
6: Oh, wow. That's interesting. So as I looked under the hood there and saw one,
2: there's actually another one somewhere.
3: Oh, no, there's yeah, two. That- <laughs> They're all well, right next unless to each other. other.
2: Unless, unless you have the dual mag.
3: Well, that's true. Uh, yes. Not on a 1.4. But he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't. Oh,
2: yeah. uh, Okay.
3: Yeah, I better, I better
2: open the other side up and look
6: at
3: that side. <laughs> yeah, make sure it's there. <laughs> if it's not there, you got serious troubles.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's also worth mentioning that that if your magneto's are equipped with impulse couplings, which probably the majority of them are, that's the a little gizmo that attaches to the mag that allows you to get your engine started. And and if you if it's a thing that causes the click 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 sound when you pull the prop over by hand. Impulse couplings have a history of, of mechanical problems. or They've got wear points on them and stuff. And if, if they come apart, really bad things can happen because things can drop into the engine. <laughs> so uh, that's another good reason for, for wanting to pull the mags every 500 hours. It's not just what's inside the mag, but the, but the impulse couplings are something that need close, close inspection. Great,
6: great, great. Thank you very much.
3: And Robert, when I uh, first got my uh, Cessna, one of the first things I did is got a big pad of paper and went through the logbooks and wrote down all the dates when things were removed or replaced or overhauled, anything that looked major to me, you know. And then I, I typed it up in a spreadsheet. So I have a record of when was the last time I replaced a tire on the left side and, when, and then how many hours are on it. And it's a great. I mean, your mechanic will love you if you do that, but it's a great way for you as the owner to kind of keep tabs on all the parts and see when they're coming up for an inspection or replacement.
6: Okay, so it's not just the uh, magneto, there's other things too.
3: There's lots of stuff in there, unfortunately. So keeping, you know, I have an airframe tab, I have a engine tab, I have a radios and and instruments tab, and I have records of when they were first installed, You know, if it says what brand they are, how many hours on them, what the serial number is. And then when it comes time for your mechanic to uh, do an AD search at your first annual inspection, he can just refer to that list and he doesn't have to go looking at serial numbers on the backs of the radios in your radio stack or something like that. It just saves him some time. And remember, mechanics, they charge a lot of money. So any time you can save is money in your pocket. No, we are
0: all
2: benevolent souls.
3: But never expensive. Free. I was,
2: was going to say if you send your logbooks to Colleen, she'll get them all organized for I you. I should do
3: that. I love organizing <laughs> stuff like that. It's but are a Are you going to do
2: it? Are you going to do it for free?
0: we need to establish I'll, the baseline here.
3: I'll do it for Robert. Oh, <laughs> uh, Robert, that was a, an awesome question, and I know a lot of people probably had the same question. So thanks for uh, bringing that to us, and have fun with that Cherokee.
0: Yeah, and enjoy the venture. <laughs> yeah,
3: thank you very much.
0: So our next question is from Floyd, who's working on keeping things cool. Welcome to the show, Floyd. Thank you. What's, uh, what's on your mind today?
7: I read an excellent article Mike wrote for the Jupe, I think it was a July AOPA magazine, on valve sticking. I learned a lot about how the condensation of those gases on, on the valve stems create the, the the problem. But at the very end of the article, Mike pointed out that the uh, way to keep valves from sticking was to uh, keep the temperatures in the, uh, the cylinder head temperatures up. Um, ideally on continental engines, he said between uh, 350 and 400 degrees, I'd fly SR-22 normally asp- aspir- aspirated SR-22 and it, my typical trip is uh, three hour legs with ten thousand feet, lean a peak, full wide wide open throttle, lean, lean a peak at uh, about thirteen and a half gallons an hour of fuel flow. And my cylinder head temperatures on my cirrus never ex- average never exceeds three hundred degrees. So that sent up a red flag for me, and i'm I was wondering, I've got seventeen hundred hours on this engine now, and with no signs of sticking valves so far. But it just triggered the question for for Mike as to what about a Continental and a a Cirrus that stays so cool? uh, What are are we supposed to do?
0: My SR-22 does the exact same thing. Okay, well, well, you're supposed to tell us this is all great.
2: Floyd and Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Floyd, I did not mean to alarm you with that article. We very seldom see valve sticking problems on big bore continental engines. It, it's, it's not very common. It's much more of a problem with lycomings for reasons that I think I explained in the article, because the lycoming valves have a, have a very different temperature profile because they're sodium filled. Your continental engine has solid stem valves. So the, the, the valve head tends to run quite a bit hotter than it would if it was a Lycoming valve, which which has a, a much better heat transfer into the stem. So we don't see a lot of valve sticking problems uh, with Continentals, but if you're concerned about it, what I would recommend, I, I, I would not recommend that you go back to Richard Peak or do anything heroic to increase your cylinder head temperature. What I would recommend if you're concerned about this is to do a borescope inspection of your cylinders, which you should be doing uh, anyway. But when you're doing the borescope inspection, make sure to rotate the prop so that the exhaust valve is fully open so that you can actually get a look at what the lower part of the valve stem looks like. And if the valve stems look relatively clean, then just keep doing what you're doing. If you start seeing significant buildup of, of, of you know, crusty deposits, which, which are, are lead bromide deposits uh, on the valve stems when you're doing a, a borescope inspection, you might want to take some steps to increase the, the combustion temperatures, increase the CHTs a little bit. My, my guess is that if you look, you'd, you'd find that your valve stems are, are, are nice and clean and, and that you don't have anything to worry about. I fly a a twin Cessna with a couple of big bore continental engines. They're they're TSIO520s, but they're second cousins to the IO550 that you have in your Cirrus. And I've had this airplane for 30 years, and there's only one time in the 30 years that I ever had a problem with excessive lead deposits on the valve. And that was a, a, a flight that I took, very unusual flight, where... During the winter, I was able to make it nonstop from California all the way to Wichita, Kansas, which is beyond the normal range of the airplane. And I did it up at the low flight levels at extremely low power settings, had a great tailwind, and uh, w- was running uh, less than 50% power for for, for about six hours. And um, when I borescoped the cylinders after that flight, I saw an unusual buildup of lead deposits, but in the 30 years I've been flying this airplane, this is the only time I've ever I've ever experienced that, and it was a pretty extreme case of low cylinder head temperatures.
3: Mike, that's interesting. Do those deposits burn off with time if you go back to normal operations?
2: Uh, they typically don't. In fact, they're 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 really really nasty. You you can't take them off with any solvent. You have to abrade them off. They are. Very nasty, crusty, horrible <laughs> deposits. Uh, and if you ever see a like a, a, an exhaust valve that comes out of a, a Lycoming that 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 had a a valve sticking problem, and you you run your fingernail over the deposits, you'll see that you know they're they make a pretty good nail file. Really, it's <laughs> it's a it's a they're they're pretty ugly deposits, and they're very difficult to remove.
7: Your your report from the last two flights I sent in to be analyzed the, the report always comes back that my oil temps are too low as well or not too low they're below the average I think I run around one hundred and sixty degrees oil temperature which is that's an out, uh, I, I'm sure that's a consequence of just being so cool overall
2: yeah we like we like to see oil temperatures ideally. Between 180 and 200 degrees Fahrenheit, 170 is probably acceptable. Much lower than that, and you may want to try to take some steps. Uh, it's interesting. The the engine in the Cirrus, the IO550N, had a a very low oil temperature problem classically, and Continental came out with a new vernatherm valve for it to to help bring up the the oil temperature. So if your oil temperature is running low, one of the things you might want to do is check to see that you have the latest part number of vernotherm in your engine because it it, it it might be that you have the old one and that would help bring up your oil temperatures a little bit. The, the reason to be concerned about low oil temperatures is that if the oil temperature is low, it doesn't get hot enough to boil off uh, moisture embedded in it. And so moisture just keeps building up inside the engine. The oil temperature that you read on the gauge is typically measured at the coldest point of the cycle, right after the oil comes out of the oil cooler. And as it passes through the engine and absorbs lots of heat from the bottom of pistons and other hot things, it usually heats up about 40 degrees Fahrenheit before it gets to the cooler and gets cooled back down again. So the boiling point of water is, you know, about 210 degrees. And so if you subtract 40 degrees from that, you get 170. And so we, we, we really like the oil temperature to be at least 170 degrees. If you're flying up at high altitudes where the boiling point of water is less, then, then you could get away with a lower oil temperature. But you might want to check and see if you have the latest model Vernotherm installed in your engine, because uh, there was a problem with the IO-550N in the cirrus running too cool in terms of oil temperatures, and and Continental did come out with a different vernotherm to help address that problem.
7: Okay, thanks. So other than valve deposits and and oil temps running too cool, are there any other negative consequences of running cool? Because I I went to the church of Lena Peak up in Ada, Oklahoma, some years ago, (laughs) and uh, was thoroughly... uh, uh, converted and uh Brain I've been flying flying yep. well, in a peak ever since.
2: Yeah, I would strongly suggest that you continue to go to services every Sunday. That's a very good <laughs> that's a very good church. And uh my, my guess is as I said, if you do a borescope inspection you'll find that everything is nice and clean in your engine and you uh, keep doing what you're doing except maybe a check on the Vernatherm and see if you can bring up your oil temps a little bit.
0: Yeah, so if it makes you feel any better, my SR22 with 2100 hours on it has never had a cylinder off and has been flown almost exactly like yours and no sticky valves. Yet. Great. And and I go to church often too, so. <laughs> yeah, but
2: it's Baptist. It's different well, uh, it's a different okay. different sect.
0: <laughs> Floyd, those, that's excellent question. We really appreciate your call. Our next question is from Stella about breaking in her new engine. Hi, Stella. Great to have you on the show.
4: Hello, everyone. So I fly a Piper Cherokee around New England. My engine is currently being overhauled. I do own my Bush's engines book, did my research, chose the shop. And my question is, what are best practices for breaking in a new engine and knowing what weather is like in New England? What if I can't do, you know, what if I can't fly the number of hours that I should be flying um, in those early days? What advice do you have for me?
0: That's a that's excellent. We get that question a lot. I think all mechanics get that question a lot and everybody has a different opinion. But uh, Colleen just didn't you just overhaul the engine in your Cardinal? Yeah, well,
3: it's been three years, but yeah, yeah. it seems like yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm, I'm
2: really disappointed because I, I was hoping that Stella hadn't yet sent her engine in for overhaul because I was going to try to talk her out of overhauling the engine, but it sounds like I got to her too late.
4: But you, you know, know book, what? I, uh, I had no choice, Mike. My prop, hit my toe bar.
3: Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That'll do it.
4: I had nothing to do with that, but <laughs> well, <laughs>
3: that's you know, even I'm worse. Off hitting
0: a toe bar on a Lycoming. Right. It's interesting. Right. You, you are required. There's an AD for the, yeah. the crankshaft gear bolt, but there's not actually a requirement to tear it down. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, I'm just saying it's not an FA right. requirement. Right. And you don't actually have to do an overhaul. You just do a teardown inspection. But if you're already thinking of an overhaul, it's, it's a great a time to have yeah. the, uh, the cost of the overhaul paid subsidized insurance. by the insurance right. company. Yeah.
2: Although anything that messes up the propeller is considered to be a prop strike. We almost never see any engine damage on a low power prop, prop strike, which is clearly what a close encounter with a tow bar of the wrong kind would be, um, yeah. w- the only time we ever see damage to an engine after prop strike is if it's a high power prop strike. If it's, for example, a prop strike on takeoff or on a go around or somebody who's trying to rescue a gear up that sort of thing, <laughs> then then we then we'll see we'll see damage. But in a low power Prop strike. Although Lycoming recommends tearing down the engine, and the FAA requires at least taking off the accessory case, we very, very—the likelihood of there being any damage to your engine at all is minuscule. But cool that you did it. all's good. But yeah, since the insurance company is paying for it, yeah, it's it's all. an opportunity. It's not a problem.
0: That's right. <laughs> right. So now to your question, after we've gone through all of that. Yeah, that's
2: right. You're you're thinking about breaking in this beast.
3: Yes.
0: So I was thinking, Colleen, since she just did hers.
3: Well, so her question, she's concerned about, you know, inclement weather in New England, um, delaying or putting off the flights, the required flights to make sure the engine's broken in. Um, you don't break an engine in on calendar time. You break it in on flight time. So if you did a couple flights and then you had to take a month off and then got back to it, in theory, there shouldn't be any adverse um, issues on that. So, so I wouldn't worry about that. But the point is that okay. every time you do fly the air, the engine until it's broken in, your purpose is to run the engine hard so that the cylinder walls where they come in contact with the piston rings are wearing into a perfect mating you know contact you're taking off all the little rough edges in the cylinder when they built the cylinders even though they're microscopic you can't really see them but there's a lot of nooks and crannies in there and you're trying to smooth that out so you have a nice mating surface between your piston rings and your cylinder and okay. you want to run the engine as hard as you can which is actually kind of fun and as low as you can, because you're getting the highest cylinder pressures in, in, um, that are creating that, that contact. And you're also, classically, what you're trying to do is encourage wear in the, run, in, in the run-in period, in the break-in period. So a lot of people will use mineral oil, which encourages wear. Um, I know Mike okay. doesn't. I think Mike doesn't advocate in a mineral oil. You could also yeah. use regular oil. What you want to do is get those two surfaces to wear against each other, and you want to wash that debris away. And th- that's the point of breaking in an engine. And that's why you get those high CHTs when you're breaking them in, because there's a lot of friction, right? I'll let okay. you I'll let you talk about the oil, Mike. I know that you have some opinions about that.
2: Okay, well, basically, I, I've seen no evidence that straight mineral oil has any advantages over using... Uh, an ordinary uh, ashless dispersant oil. There there are basically two things you want to avoid when you're breaking in the engine. One is you don't want to use an oil that has any synthetics in it. So you don't want to use Aeroshell 15W50. That's pretty much the only oil that has synthetics in it anymore because uh, Exxon took their uh, semi-synthetic off the market. The Exxon Elite is no longer available. So you don't you don't want to use anything with with uh, synthetics in it like aeroshell fifteen W fifty, and you don't want to use anything with any scuff additives in it. So you you don't want to use aeroshell fifteen W fifty. You don't want to use aeroshell uh, W one hundred plus. You don't want to use Phillips Victory oil. All of those things have extreme pressure additives in it, which are really good except during break in, and then they're really bad. Okay. okay. <laughs> And something you need to keep in mind is that if you do the break in correctly, ninety-five percent of it will be done after the first hour. Oh, um, really? Okay. If, yeah.
4: if,
2: if if you don't do it correctly, uh, <laughs> you you can you can fly it till the cows come home, and it's still and, and you still have high oil consumption. So it's really important that 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 very first flight. Is really the critical flight, and if you do that okay. one right, you've pretty much done most of what needs to be done.
4: Okay, so what kind of evidence, cylinders?
2: What kind of cylinders are going on this engine?
4: Conventional
2: um, steel cylinders. N- uh, uh,
4: they use new. So the shop where the engine was sent uses new, superior millennial millennium. 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 Okay, okay, fine cylinders. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah,
2: right. The key thing on the break-in flight is to run the engine at the highest power you can possibly get away with for about an hour, okay. and the highest power you can get away with for a a homing is the is the highest power uh, that you can maintain, preferably full takeoff power, but but uh, without getting any of the cylinder head temperatures over about 440 degrees um, 440 okay and and once the break in is successful you'll see those temperatures come down pretty markedly so you will you'll, you'll get some pretty good feedback with your engine monitor that the break in has has been accomplished because the cylinder head temperatures will come down to something more normal but um if you can run at full takeoff power and full rich uh, and not exceed 440, then that's the way to get the break-in done real quick.
4: Great. Thank you very
3: much. Appreciate it. Great
0: question, Stella. Thank you very much for calling in.
3: Okay, well, that's a wrap. We know a lot about maintenance, uh, much more about maintenance than podcasting. So we'd love to hear from you. Why don't you give us your ideas on what you want to hear? Send them questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun. And we'll see you next time.
2: See ya. Bye, everybody.